1978, Scott Adams published Adventureland, a text-based adventure game written for the TRS-80. And in doing so, he wrote the very first adventure game ever written for a personal computer. Writing on its success, he founded Adventure International, and over the course of its seven-year history, Scott Adams wrote 14 more games in what is now called the Scott Adams Adventure Series. Today we're going to take a look at the history of Adventure International and its creator Scott Adams. As part of its story, we'll look at the entirety of its company's seven-year catalog, Scott Adams or not. So stick around and join us for the next great adventure on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 155th episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, a technology. It can be about whatever the heck I want it to be. It just has to be relevant to this week in gaming history. That's all you need to know. Today, we're all going to learn about Adventure International, a video game publishing company that existed between 1979 and 1986. So I'm guessing before most of you were even born. Heck, it existed before I was born, so that's a fair bet. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who lives his days two words at a time. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what are the two words for today? Hey, Dave. Okay, I'll take it. There are way worse words to live by. That's like, um, hey Jude, but it's hey Dave instead. Less cool. <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> uh, uh, what are we playing? Well, Dave, this week has seen some RuneScape and some Rocket League. Uh, it has also seen some American Truck Simulator and some PC Building Simulator. Mm. Ooh, PC Building Simulator, huh? Yes, sir. How? How's that one working out? I mean, it's just another simulator game, you know. It makes me want to build a computer, but I can't afford to, so I do it in a game. That is very accurate representation of most of our gaming yep can't do it like, in real life so do it in the game like i want to go to space and build a space colony but i can't so oxygen no, not? not included true and i actually you're right i was playing that today as well <laughs> i didn't even so, know that yeah of course you do mm -hmm. what about yourself dave what have you been up to this week Rocket League. I don't think I played anything else. I think just Rocket League. I'm wow. sure. I'm sure someone's going to be like, no, you played something else too. But I really, really didn't that I can think of in any way, shape or form. No, I think you did, Dave. I think you're crazy. I mean, I've been on a lot of medications laid up this past week, so that is a distinct possibility. Um. I think last week I talked about playing Forager on my back. 
so that wasn't this week. No, it's just Rocket League. That's it. Well, damn. I know. Sorry. Sometimes it'd be like that. Sorry to disappoint. You should be. I know. I know. Oh, this guy plays a ton of video games. What do you play? Rocket League. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else. Uh, I, I've been trying to sit down and play Far Cry. I have loaded it up many times and then something comes up and I get pulled away and I don't actually play it. So, sorry. Sorry to disappoint you, everyone. Well, Dave, you can try again this week. I sure will. I sure will. So, Adventure International, founded by Scott Adams. Scott had a brother. Pretty interesting brother, actually. His brother's name was Richard Adams. Richard Adams is like an inventor and engineer. Uh, You know, and sometimes the people that are around our stories are interesting, too. Like, Richard Adams invented a video camera when he was 10 years old. And, like... Yeah, just like at home, made a video camera. He was in the Miami Herald because he asked the newspaper to help him find a TV station that would help him tune the camera at 10 years old. Oh, he got it working at 12. So this probably would have been more just a 12. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool. He went to the Florida Institute of Technology and he created an interface and software to connect an electronic organ to the computer so he could record music to the computer. Hmm. And then, and then we are so blessed because he, at one point, built a 16-bit computer at home. And his brother, per our topic today, Scott Adams, learned how to use that computer to program his first computer game. Well, he was teaching at, uh, not teaching, he was going to school at the Florida Institute of Technology. Um, so yeah, Richard Adams, really fascinating. We have him to thank. So Scott Adams took this computer and in his free time, he started learning game programming in 1975. He wrote a graphical action game that was similar to space war. Basically after that, he started to spread out. So in 1978, he wrote, an adventure-style game on a personal computer. It was on a Radio Shack TRS. What do we learn that that stands for? The Radio Shack 80. It's a TRS-80 Model 1, and he wrote it in BASIC on a 16-kilobyte TRS-80. And it was an adventure-style game for personal computers. Now, we know this now to be the first-ever adventure-style game written for a personal computer. Now, let me preface that by saying that there are earlier graphical, not graphical, but adventure style, like text-based adventure games. We know, for instance, that Colossal Cave was written in 1976. We've talked about Colossal Cave in more than one episode. Will Crowther wrote that on a mainframe computer, which is the PDP-10. So there were earlier adventure games that were written on mainframe computers. But Scott Adams here wrote the very first one on a personal computer, and that is his claim to fame. And these early text adventures, they weren't that sophisticated. And that's what's really fascinating. One of the things that's always fascinated me about them. So we've talked about this before, but I'll give a little, uh, you know, we'll do a little uh, refresher on it. So 
text-based games have has what's called a parser. And the parser is basically your library of words, like how the program recognizes the words that you do that you that you use to do actions in the game. So it would it would be the thing that scans what you type in that knows the difference between south and north, for instance. Back then, we were dealing with very limited memory, 16 kilobytes. So, of course, you can't put a parser that knows every word on the face of the earth. Nowadays, with AI, they don't even have to have parsers. The AI can interpret what they want to do and rewrite it into something that the software recognizes and move on. Like, where we are in programming in this genre is amazing, to be totally honest with you. But back then, we only had low amounts of memory 16 kilobytes not a lot of memory um and so the parsers are very limited so the parser in all these early text adventures that scott adams wrote were ones that really only recognized the first three letters of each command so for instance the three phrases scream bear scratch bear or screw bear are all recognized as the same command by a parser in these early text games. So if it's the first three characters, is it of each word or just? Yes, each word. Yeah. Okay. So you could effectively even write like screen bean. Yeah. Yeah. Screen bean, scratch bean, screw bean. That's interesting. I mean, it's what we had back then. The fact that we had it. The fact that we had text adventures was amazing, you know? It's just crazy to think about that. Like, someone could still kind of just muddle their way through it because they, they're bad at spelling. Well, there were other things, too. Like, some of these early text adventures had instruction manuals that told you what you could and couldn't use. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I'm not sure about these, to be honest with you. But, I, I mean, like, Zork. I, Zork, I played. That's a really popular text adventure game. That one that was easy to find out what you could use and couldn't use. And, it, and it, to be fair, it had a more advanced parser, but, you know, thing, things were what they were. So, yeah, so he creates these adventure games and decides at one point to co-found. That was, let's see, 1978 is when he wrote his first one, and that would be called Adventureland. So Adventureland is what we now recognize to be the first text adventure video game for microcomputers. It is a game that involves searching for 13 lost artifacts in a fantasy setting. So you control the game in a text adventure through written commands, so they can be a single word. Single words that would have worked in this game are things like north, south, east, west, up, and down. Like I said, you can use two-word verb noun phrases like screw bear or climb tree. Um, this game only recognized about 120 words. And again, it only recognized the first three letters, but that's how you made it work. And yeah, so in order to complete the game, you have to collect 13 lost artifacts. They are a statue of Paul Bunyan's blue ox, babe, a jeweled fruit, a golden fish, a dragon's egg, a golden net, a magic carpet, a diamond necklace, a diamond bracelet, a pot of rubies, 
the royal honey, a crown, a magic mirror, and a firestone. Now, this game is very similar to Colossal Cave Adventure, but it's kind of scaled down a scaled down version of it. Uh, and and it was popular. It was incredibly popular. Um, one other thing that you should know about some of these early games that's really fascinating. We sold them. Like, people sold them. But they also sold them to magazines. So you could go into various publications back here in the 80s and open it up. And the entire source code would be in the magazine for you to write on your own computer and play the game that way. You didn't always have to go buy a disc or software, depending on the game. I mean, your big games, big publishers were always going to do it that way. But a lot of your little guys who were new starting out or things like that would sell it, like I said, sell it to different software magazines that would publish the source code magazine and and you would recreate it and play the game. I How, how big of the source code are we talking here? Because like, I feel like it would be pages long. It is. Okay. It is. It's, I mean, we're not talking like 100 pages. I mean, 10, 20. I, I don't remember. I had books of them. They sold books of, of design your own software. And I used to do it too. I used to go through and type everything. And then when you hit like run and it ran, you like, I was so proud of myself. Like that is so cool when you're like, you know, seven, eight, nine years old and you're writing software, like games, like you're writing the games, you're writing the games, you know, man, I still got that same level of excitement writing Java code in college. So like anytime you have a code that runs successfully, it's a great feeling. Very, very true. So you could run the software and then, you know, we didn't really have the ability to save the software. So for a lot of us, like the moment you turned off your computer, all that work was gone. So you would like, write the game, play the game, try to keep the computer on as long as possible. And then at one point you'd recognize like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I got to turn it off now. So no so floppy that, disk to save it to, huh? Uh, no, I mean, you, you didn't always have the ability to read and write like writing. Wasn't always an option. Gotcha. So Adventureland was originally written for the Tandy radio shack 80 but it was also ported to other systems as they came out later on. So it eventually ended up on the Apple II, the 8-bit Ataris, the TI-99, the PET. Like the calculator. Yes, the BIC-20, the Commodore 64, IBM PC, ZX Spectrums, BBC Micros, Acorn Electrons, Dragons, and XED Sorcerers. It, it ported its way to just about everything. Right. I'm just shocked at the calculator. I mean, it's a text-based game. I mean, I, all right, you got a point. It's still just crazy. All right, I'm going I'm to stretch this out as long as I can. It's not the calculator. Texas Instruments made microcomputers at one time in their life. Oh. Well, that makes a lot more sense, but I remember my TI-89. Yeah, yeah, they made, they made microcomputers in the late 70s, early 80s. I think they stopped through the 80s, but they made microcomputers. You picked up on the, well, because it's the calculator, but you didn't pick up on the PET. I've never heard of a pet before, have you? Uh, no. I... That, that was a Commodore microcomputer, like before the Commodore 64. Oh. It's like the Commodore 32? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. It's more like the Commodore 16, but you got the right idea. So. Okay, so 16. Yeah, I gotcha. I don't even think it was the 16, because the VIC-20 was 8-bit. What was the Oh, P- so was it what, still what? 4? 
It is, hold on, let me look at TI release. What's it say? It ran a 6502, which was an 8-bit microprocessor. So okay. It was an 8-bit. So it ported out to a bunch of everything. They sold essentially shareware version of it. There was a three treasure version entitled Adventure Zero Special Sampler that they sold at like a cheap, cheap price. And then in 1982, it was re-released with graphics, which allowed the player to see the scenery and, and the objects. Adventureland, little bit of trivia for you guys, is the very first text adventure game ever written for a microcomputer. And it was written and released by Scott Adams in 1978. To recap everything that was already said. Yes. So it was a it was a it was a success, needless to say. People were already in love with adventure games. Like we know that Colossal Cave Adventure was incredibly popular on the campuses that had the mainframes. So that was a thing. So now that we have microcomputer company doing them, it was popular. So eventually that was really popular. And he decided at that point to co-found a company with his wife at the time her name was alexis adams and they founded a company in 1979 in the wake of that success called adventure international and for a bunch of time they were on a, a pretty good uh i mean they were they were pumping them out their next game was a game called pirate adventure or pirate cove it is the second game and what we now know as the the they're the adventure series. They were called the Scott Adams Adventure Series. Um, most of the games that Adventure International wrote are part of the series. There are a few that aren't. We'll talk about that momentarily. But the you know, so it starts out with Adventureland, and then the Adventure Number Two is called Pirate Adventure. That's how the discs are labeled. Like if you look at the box art, Number One, Number Two, so on and so forth. So, so Number Two, Pirate Adventure pirate adventure it is based on ideas that alexis gave him the setting is inspired by treasure island and it involves a quest to retrieve long john silver's lost treasures so like the first Adventureland game it involved moving from location to location picking up objects found there and using them elsewhere to unlock puzzles you moved with the the locations north south east west or you did the verb noun combo like climb tree uh grab coconut i'm assuming may have been one of them i don't know on the search of some fried fish huh on the search of some fried fish i know long i haven't i haven't thought about long john silvers in forever there are none here opening up a crappy seafood chain would be suicide here <laughs> yeah you got a point yeah, yeah, you just don't you don't do that when you're on the Gulf Coast. So and basically this one had some pretty cool progression. You started the game in a flat and you moved outside and then you found a bit of magic to move to Pirate Island. On Pirate Island, you had to build a ship to raid Treasure Island. And on Treasure Island, you had to find a couple pieces of treasure. Um, there are you have a pirate alley, alley, ally, alley. <laughs> You have a pirate ally and so it was the first text adventure game in the series maybe even that we know of that had a second character which is kind of cool 
Could you play the second character? Well, you kind of played all the... I, you know, I don't know the answer to that, like, if you played, or if he was just there causing havoc. I, what I do like, though... So the magic phrase that you needed to reach the island in the game was say yo-ho. And that became the name of a long-running column in Softside Magazine written by Scott Adams. Nice. Say yo-ho. Yo-ho. So like the first one, the source code was eventually published. And eventually it was republished with an addendum in a couple years later in like 1981 that allowed others to kind of learn how the engine worked and modify it to create their own adventures. Good guy, Scott Adams. And yeah, so you have, you have the, you have the pirate's cove. It is a a good adventure. And with the right tools, you could find all of long John silver's treasures. You know what I mean? Yeah. And who doesn't like treasure, Rob? Uh, people who don't like treasure. Very true. But any good treasure, to find it, it takes the help of some really great tools. Anything worth working or fighting for or accomplishing is going to take good tools. Am I right? Uh, you got a point there, Dave. I think you're right. Absolutely. And when it comes to good tools, if you're looking for some great tools to podcast with, Look no further than Zencaster, the platform that we here at A Trip Down Memory Card Lane use to record, sometimes edit, and publish our podcast. You know, one of the cool things about Zencaster is how easy it is to get everyone together and record. Rob, I mean, like, you're all, I create the lobbies every week, so I set everything up. And what, how do you connect to the lobby? Well, you send me a link. I open the link and then enter my information, make sure my devices are right and join the lobby. It's as simple as that. Do you have to do anything else to make this work? No, not a damn thing. It is super easy. Plus Zencaster also has automatic post-production that makes editing a breeze. 100%. So look, I'm I'm going to admit this, you know, I love this podcast, but my life gets busy sometimes. Some weeks I have all the time to sit down and edit out every ooh, ah, um, and make this sound great. And other weeks I have to take shortcuts. I need a little bit of help. And when I need a little bit of help, I turn to Zencaster's post-production platform where they make this podcast sound great and help me get rid of some of the uh, unwanted parts of our podcast and i you just can't beat its ease and usability it's absolutely fantastic so whether you're a seasoned podcaster or just starting out zencaster's got you covered it's user-friendly and intuitive makes recording a stress-free experience i mean i love ever since we found Zencaster, it's so easy. I used to be so nervous to like invite our friends onto this podcast until we found this software. Cause remember the old stuff that we used, how like there was more than one time when we re-record an episode and then it wouldn't sync up. Like we would lose the audio and we'd have to go back and re-record. Do you remember those days? Oh yeah. It was a nightmare. And we haven't had to do that at all since we switched over to Zencaster. Have we? No, it's, it's been a pretty seamless uh, process ever since then. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. It records all the audio separately in separate tracks locally on each user's device. And then when the when you hit stop, when your podcast is over and you say, hey, we're done with this episode, it upload it like syncs them up and uploads them all to the server. So you have like links for each individual applicant or applicant, each individual participant. And you just click, you know, download track one belonging to this person, download track two belonging to usually track one is David and track two is Rob. And then, you know, track three is our witch McCallits. And, you know, I can just pop those into my editing software and away we go. It, it's so stupid easy. I would highly recommend it to anyone. And if you're looking to try Zencaster, they do have some trial, some free tiers to their service but if you want all the good stuff like like the post-production higher quality auto recording higher quality video recording uh the lot of really good features they have paid platforms and we have a special offer for all of you listeners we do very much so head on over to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use our offer code memory card lane all one word and you can get up to 30% off the first month of any of those paid plans. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing and use the offer code memory card lane to get 30% off the first month of any Zencaster premium podcasting plan. So record, collaborate, and create with Zencaster today. Use it, guys. I can't recommend it enough. It absolutely changed the way we did things. But you know who didn't change the way they do things, Rob? I'm going to guess Scott Adams, Dave. No, Scott Adams definitely did not change the way he did things. Because once you have a successful way of doing things, a successful formula for games that people are going to buy, why change it? You know, that's why we have the uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare every year. Who wants to change that? It's great. You know, it's sad that that's true. It really is. <laughs> I hate it because evolution is the way, but damn Call of Duty. We do it to ourselves, right? Because no, if, we, absolutely. if we wouldn't buy it, they wouldn't keep doing it. So gamers do it to themselves. There is nobody else to blame. If one of those yearly editions of madden or call of duty or need for speed or anything that they re- rinse and repeat like that anytime they do it if there's one version that just falls completely on its face that always breeds evolution so if we want it we have to do something about it and that's just exercise a little bit of restraint that's all it takes and don't buy something that's it just don't buy it it's not that hard but things Well, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, one friend buys it and then everyone wants to play with their friends and then it just snowballs and and away we go. So So Pirate Adventure came out in 1979. He produced another game called Secret Mission and then another game called Voodoo Castle the same year. Voodoo Castle was written by both Scott and Alexis in 1979. It's number four in the Adventureland series. And this, just like all the others, you know, you move from location to location, you use your verb noun, Um, way to control it and voodoo castle involves a plot where you have to wake up a count dracula type character named count christo 
and Count Christo is laying in a coffin at the starting, like where you start the game. And you're, you know, you know, right away that your, your, your goal is to wake him up. And so you just, you have to go around the Voodoo Castle collecting certain items, overcoming obstacles. Some of the obstacles are like, there's an exploding test tube. There's a doorway that's too small to pass through normally without some magic or trickery. Just things like that. Grab the items to wake up Count Crystal and win the game. That's that's basically Voodoo Castle. No, nothing, nothing too fancy about it. But they backed that up right away with a game called The Count, which is number five in the Adventureland series, right? Right. So this is a Scott Adams game. And again, you move from location to location. You pick up your objects. You do whatever you need to do. And in this one... You have been sent to defeat Count Dracula by the local Transylvania village. So you have to gather items from around his castle and then use said items to defeat him. Now, this game is unique. It's different from the rest. This is the first time we saw a change in the formula. This is different because it uses time. The count is set over three days. There are certain problems that you have to solve on particular days. There are certain events that happen on, at particular times on certain days. You also have to avoid being attacked at night because that's when the vampire, you know, wakes up. Uh, so it involves playing differently depending on the time and depending on the day. So a little level of complexity added to the design of this game. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, it is. But it, you know, it's at least it's not the same count from the original from Voodoo Castle because you imagine doing all that work to try and save him just to. I know, wake him up. Him. I mean, that makes sense, though. Maybe you woke him up and he's not what you expected. Instead of being cool, he's a murderer. And you're like, ah, crap. Well, now we got to kill you. Sorry. Well, and I mean, it's a vampire. What do you expect? You think they're mm-hmm. going to be friendly? Like, hey, guys, how's it going? Have you gonna ever go drink seen, that cow's blood? You ever seen Twilight before? They're friendly vampires. Yeah, but they sparkle. Well, sparkle vampires are still vampires. I don't know, Dave. It's debatable. Very true. So Adventureland number five is a game called Strange Odyssey. It controls the same way. In Strange Odyssey, you start out stranded on a tiny asteroid in a damaged spaceship. And you have to stumble across aliens, use their teleportion devices to travel to distant worlds, collect various treasure and materials that you need to repair the spacecraft. Neat. And get off of the tiny asteroid. Is it timed as well? Or is that only the count? So far, the only one that I know of is, is that's, I mean, there might be another time one. I think there's one more, but time wasn't something he played with a whole lot in the Adventureland series. So, gotcha. So after Strange Odyssey, and these are all 1979, Adventureland 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 were all published in 1979. Holy shoot. Yeah, they were, they were cooking. They were cooking. So Adventureland number seven is a game called Mystery Funhouse. I just I'm gonna leave it at that. I don't need I don't need to I don't need to say anything. Uh I think you do, Dave. Yeah, I know. So Mystery Funhouse was produced in only one week. Oh. I'm gonna let that sit there because we were just talking about how many games they uh they released. I mean yeah, they released quite a few games so in that year, so I guess some had to come out pretty quick. Yeah. I'm gonna guess it has something to do with a funhouse. And a mystery that comes up from it. 
So this one's considered one of the one of the, if not the most difficult games in the Adventureland series. And you explore a fun house, as you correctly pointed out, uh, to locate a set of secret plans. And you have to solve puzzles to get there. And think and like this fun house had some fun things. It's not like your hollow mirror stuff like stuff. There's a maze, there's a shooting gallery, you have to charm a mermaid. Um, you have to turn off a steam calliope. You mean a calliope? Sure, we'll go with calliope. I did it like the the I did it like the um calliope is the what Greek or Latin which call it? Yeah, the that which call it. The Greek muse by the same name is pronounced calliope, but the instrument was usually pronounced calliope. Calliope. There you go. Wait, actually? <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. That's I was mean. just being facetious. That's hilarious. Yeah, so on the Wikipedia entry, because I, I confused myself for a second, because I'm like, I know you're right, but are you right? So the pronunciation of the word has long been disputed and is often pronounced differently inside and outside the groups that use it. The Greek muse by the same name is produced calliope, but the instrument was usually pronounced calliope by the people who played it. Hmm. A 19th century magazine attempted to settle the dispute by publishing this rhyme. Proud folk stare after me, call me Calliope. Tooting joy, tooting hope, I am the Calliope. That's fucking wow. cool, actually. That is. That is really cool. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's good. That's my learn something new for today, for sure. <laughs> yeah, damn it. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so they have to turn off a steam Calliope that is so loud the player's instructions are misunderstood, which is a homage to the loud room in the first Zork game. In one room, there's a trampoline so the player can enter, deposit items, and exit. The player can then carry the trampoline around regardless of how much it's holding, thus extending one's carrying capacity indefinitely. Violent solutions to puzzles are discouraged by a gameplay feature which sees the character player ejected from the fun house by a bouncer whenever certain commands are typed. <laughs> oh, so you can't say kill guy. Mm-mm. Or else you get booed and you have to start over. That's well, kind of damn. funny. That is hilarious, actually. All right, your last game of 1979 is Adventureland number, what are we on, eight? Adventureland number eight. It's called Pyramid of Doom. Can you guess what this one's about? Uh, I'm going to guess it's about a city that is underwater. True. Very true. So this one actually isn't written by Scott Adams. It's written by Elvin Files. He independently reverse engineered one of Adam's adventure games, wrote a new game using what he learned and then submitted it back to Adam's and Adam's then tweaked it to release it as part of the series. Wow. Isn't that cool? That is really freaking cool. The guy got a job after that. I mean, I mean, he got paid for this. I would assume since his name is on it, you know, I mean, yeah, but you know, Hey, this guy did all this. You could at least offer him a job. Be like, Hey, we are obviously know you're talented. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So the object of Pyramid of Doom, no surprise, is to enter an Egyptian pyramid and plunder its treasures. You have various challenges related to that. There's an angry mummy, there's a purple worm, (laughs) and there's an irate (laughs) desert nomad. So, you know, Pyramid of Doom. All right, so going into 1980, Adventureland number nine, Ghost Town. 
it's funny because you've already used this, haven't you? Didn't you say one of the other ones was about a ghost town? I don't believe I did. Ah, gotcha. So Ghost Town is a game in which a player searches a western ghost town for treasure. That's all. Oh. So can you just type find treasure? Oh, that's a good one. I have no clue. Because it says you get bonus points for performing additional deeds, so maybe you can and it doesn't matter. Maybe. Oh, there's a review for this one in the Dragon number 44 that says... This is the toughest game he'd seen so far in the Adventureland series and said that Scott Adams has really outdone himself on this one. So apparently you can't just put fine treasure. Apparently you can't just put fine treasure. Now there were some other Adventureland games that don't have entries, unfortunately, that we can really know much about other than like, you know, there's an entry that has their box art. 1980 saw Savage Island. 1981 saw Savage Island Part 2. Adventureland number 12 is called Golden Voyage, which was published in 1981. Adventureland 13 was released in 1984. It's called Sorcerer of Claymore Castle. And Adventureland number 14 is called Return to Pirate's Isle. When did we go to Pirate's Isle? On Pirate Adventure? You think that's the one from Pirate Adventure? Yeah, it, it became an isle after the cove was attacked. Oh, you think you're good with that one, don't you? Oh, yeah. So all these games are written at Adventure International. You know, in 1980, they were writing the first five games on a VIC-20. Uh, VIC-20 is a Commodore 8-bit computer sold by Commodore Business Machines. It was their business one, so that's where they started, um, you know, before they ported them. But by 1983, the company had 40 employees, so they got big, basically. Oh, here, this one's got some some other stuff. So Savage Island, the most challenging adventure games. The player is not even aware of the game's goal. If the player competes part one, that they are giving one of two passwords to play the second part. That's all it says about it. Golden Voyage, Sail the Road to Find the Fountain of Youth. That's pretty cool. And he developed the games on an in-house adventure editor, right? Right. So, you know, they had their own little... That, that's the thing that they published in the magazine uh, that allowed other to kind of learn how that worked. And it was used in other series, too. You know, they took that interpreter and they used it in other series, which is, is kind of interesting. It is. So were there other games that Adventure International produced, Dave? Other than the Adventureland games? Absolutely. They weren't just a text adventure game. There were other games too. Uh, They ended up cloning some arcade games to the TRS-80 and to uh, Atari 8-bit computers like uh, Lunar Lander. That was an arcade game that they brought over. Missile Attack. Basically, it's a clone of Missile Command. They brought that over. Project Omega is a little bit it's a, a unique game that you have to manage a space colony so that sounds like something i may have tripped on at one point though i don't remember uh, it that definitely sounds like your thing i know 100 percent. they developed a strategy oriented war game called slag the game covers the slag. the game cover has a guy with like a helmet on like with one of those old school like satellite phones and there's like I don't know, artillery and missiles flying all around him, and it says slag him. That's what it, that's how I heard Ah, uh, He's voice. clearly in the military, and he's using a call slag. to the artillery with the coordinates. 
True statement, 100%. So Slag was a multiplayer game in which each player controlled a nation and had to destroy the industry of all the other players. So a little strategy-oriented war game. There was a game called Eliminator. It is a clone of Defender. If you'll remember, we talked about that when we did the the episode recently on copyright law. What did we do that for? What mm. was the actual... I mean, I know we did a whole episode on it, but I don't remember the actual topic. Do you remember what the actual topic was? I don't. If you why don't, do we, I definitely why, don't. Why do we do this every week? I, why am I so bad about remembering things like... I mean, we did a whole a whole episode on copyright law, which we should remember Breakout, the Brick game. Oh, yes, yes, Breakout, yep. So back then, there wasn't really copyright law here until late 80s, early 90s. So, I mean, everyone was just cloning games and republishing. So, yeah, so Rear Guard was a clone of, def- what I say, Defender? You, yeah, you said Eliminator was. So you got oh, that yeah, okay, up. that's right. You're right. So Rear Guard is its own game. Rear, no, Guard... No, Rear Guard was the clone nope. of Defender. Eliminator was its own game. You are correct. Yeah, yeah, you're good. We're good. So 1981, they released a game called Stone of Sisyphus. Sisyphus? Sisyphus? Syphilis? Syphilis. It's a solo dungeon adventure. Well, that that would make sense if it's the Stone of Syphilis. There is a space action game published later that year called Zost in Space. (laughs) I got totally Zost in Space, man. That's exactly it. (laughs) In Zost in Space, you have to collect trading units and eliminate enemy ships in various sectors. So that's pretty cool. They released a single screen fixed shooter called Bug Off. In Bug Off, you have to control a variety of bugs that swarm out of a Florida sinkhole and endanger the player's garden. You basically control a chemical sprayer, and you use the um, the sprayer to control the, the 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 bugs. I mean, that's not you know. Well, to control them, as in just stop them from eating your garden. There's a game called Preppy. Preppy is basically a Frogger clone. We talked about it in our Frogger episode. It follows a prep schooler, a dragon. I or, No, isn't he an alligator? His name is Wadsworth Overcash. <laughs> and he has to navigate the hazards of a country club to, re- to retrieve golf balls. Oh, scary stuff out there. I know, I know. 1982, they released a game called Sea Dragon. It's similar to an arcade game called Scramble, but played underwater instead of not basically you control a submarine that can shoot torpedoes forward and upwards and yeah 1982 there was a game called tutti fruity i don't even want to elaborate on that because i just you know i like it it had its own theme song you know what i mean oh so you remember this one no i don't remember this one what's tutti fruity the object of tutti fruity is to eat all the fruits within the time limit the game sets the stage inside a jungle clearing surrounded by trees where the player is constantly pursued by deadly bugs as he races against the clock to clear a level. Hmm. There was a Preppy 2. Oh, nice. What was that one about? It's called The Continuing Saga of Wadsworth Overcash. Oh, wow. It replaces the country club setting with an abstract overview, overhead view maze. Okay. Was it still like Frogger style? Yep, kind of. Kind of not, though. It looks like this is more... 
it's a maze game. Preppy 2 is a maze game. It wasn't like Frogger. Fro- uh, Preppy 1 looks a lot like Frogger, but Preppy 2 is a maze game. Interesting. In 1983, they produced a game called Rally Speedway. It's a top-down racing game. It's... That's it. Top-down racing game. Had some interesting stuff. You could change... Uh, there were options where you could change how vehicles handle, such as top-speed acceleration, and whether the roads are wet, dry, or icy. They also programmed an integrated editor so you could create and save your own racetrack. So that's kind of cool. Oh, neat. Here's a fun little fact I didn't know. Rally Speedway directly influenced the 1991 Nintendo Entertainment System game Micro Machines. I fucking loved that Micro Machines game. Loved it. Yeah, I remember that one. Wish they still had them. In 1983, so at one point, uh, Adventure International got into licensing. In 1983, they won the rights to develop a game around a movie called The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. In case you don't know, Buckaroo Banzai, that's what we call it, is a 1984 American science fiction film. It has like John Lithgow, Jeff Goodblum, Christopher Lloyd, uh, Peter Weller is the, the main person. And basically it centers upon the efforts of Dr. Buckaroo Banzai, who is a physicist, a neurosurgeon, a test pilot, and a rock star. Wow. To save the world by defeating a band of interdimensional aliens called Red Electroids from Planet 10. That is quite the premise. I know. Was it a good movie, Dave? I don't remember it at all. I'm not going to pretend that I do. Well, damn. Sorry. In 1985, they released a video game called Robin of Sherwood, The Touchstones of Rhiannon. It was a tie-in to the television series Robert of Sherwood. And basically, I mean, you do Robin Hood things. Sounds like a fun time, Dave. They also made a Gre- they also made a Gremlins video game, Gremlins did the they Adventure. Really? They did. Didn't know about that. So there was all sorts of fun stuff that they did. So uh, you said what happened to the company? They they uh, just well, we're not there yet because they did one more series that is worth talking about: the Quest Probe series. Oh. Mm. so quest probe probe? quest probe is a trilogy of graphical adventure video games that feature marvel comics characters so there are three of them as i said it's a trilogy there is quest probe featuring the hulk quest probe featuring spider-man and quest probe featuring human torch and the thing there was also going to be a there was also going to be a fourth one called quest probe x-men but it was never released basically the game's narrative, like the first one, Quest Probe the Hawk, follows Hawk and his humor, you know, and, and his alter ego Bruce Banner. Um, and they have to explore the materious layer of the Chief Examiner, um, which was, you know, character created for this. And yeah, so they had these three games. And this one, you know, Bruce finds himself bound to a chair in a chamber and he transforms into the Hawk and, and gets out of there and um, finds himself in like this weird dome-shaped building grassy field in the middle of nowhere and he happens upon dr strange um who tells him to look for um other things he comes across ultron he comes across ant-man it's kind of like a greatest hits of marvel characters from the time you know um even now time when when did you say this was done 84 
Well, damn. It's crazy. We've come full circle 40 years. You know, and it's pretty cool that they actually got the rights to the Marvel characters and they started to create these games. They had all intention to do 12 or 13 of them, but it just wasn't meant to be. Can you imagine if they tried it again now? That'd be a hit. Very true. Very, very true. So after those, did the uh, did Adventure International continue on, or did no. after Marvel that was it? No, they didn't. They, you know, they they never really changed their formula of text based adventures, and slowly the adventure genre became graphical, and that wasn't something that Adventure International was really prepared for. So that's not to say that they didn't do it graphics. I mean, we talked about all those clones, so there were graphics. The Quest Probe had graphics. But frankly, they were just inferior to the graphical adventures that all the other uh, companies were producing. And so they lost popularity. You know, their their market share just plummeted. You know, right as the video game market crashed in 1983, they employed 50 staff and they published titles. You know, they were they were a publishing company. I'm just talking about Adventureland games, but they were they were publishing games from other companies to the tune of like 300 different games. Oh wow! Um, but the video game market crashed, and and they lost market share because they couldn't adapt to the times, and 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 that was it. In 1986, they declared bankruptcy, and that was it for Adventure International. Just like that, just as quickly as they were there, they were gone. You know. Which is well, really, damn. which is really disappointing. It is. So, did either Scott or Alexis do anything after that? Well, Scott and Alexis divorced a few years after all this. I think like eighty-seven. They, they, they didn't stick together at, at all. So that you know that ended. Okay. So did Scott do anything? He did. He absolutely did. He became a senior programmer for a company. In 2013, he released a Bible-based game called The Inheritance. You are basically like the protagonist of a story, and you, it's a text adventure. It is what it is. I'll, I'll leave it at that. In 2016, he created a new company called Clopus to begin publishing games in a genre that he called conversational adventure games. They were very similar to what he was used to, his early text adventure games, except now in 2016, the technology was so greater that they supported full natural language sentences. You know, something we really talked about. The first game that he put out under that company was called Escape the Groomer. Um, Escape the Groomer was the first episode in a bunch of, I, I think it was the second episode. The, the game's basically called The Lost Legends of Redwall. And it is a licensed video game based on the Redwall series. Redwall being a series of children's fantasy books that were published between 86 and 2011. It's a British writer, so I, I know they're not as well known over here in the States. But Scott Adams was a fan, and so he able to you know create this company and develop these you know games based on the Redwall series. Um, and that, that, I mean, that's pretty much it. They, you know, he remarried eventually and, and we haven't heard from him really since he published the Redwall game. And I think the last episode of that to come out was 2018. Hmm. 
fun little thing that I on though, you know, looking back through their games, there is one game in the whole series that Alexis is the only name on it, and that's Voodoo Castle, the Count Crystal one. Wow. Right? So she Scott, did that one herself, huh? Yeah, Scott said that he she used his tools to create ninety five percent of that game by herself, so he gave her t- full billing on it. Wow. That's one, impressive. One character from that game, Media Megan, named after the couple's daughter, may be the first woman with dialogue in a video game ever. Wow. That's okay. A little bit that's, of trivia for you too. That's a lot of trivia from just one company that I had never heard of prior to this episode. I know. So Adventure International created the first text adventure games for personal computers. Probably created the first woman character for a video game ever. And, you know, published games. I mean, just as quickly as they started, they were gone. Let's be honest. 79 to 86 was not a long time. So they came, they went. Unfortunately, there are video game companies that come much quicker nowadays. But they did a lot of really good things. And like I said, he had beat Colossal Cave Adventure by a few years. Colossal Cave Adventure, of course, being the first adventure game ever written. And we've talked about that a few times. So if you're curious about going back to the very beginning and learning where the adventure style genre comes from, period, you can check out those episodes by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can you do on our website? Well, Dave, you can find a calendar of upcoming events, episodes that we are going to be talking about. Uh, You can find links to our social medias to our discord server where you can come hang out with dave and i you can find links to our patreon uh and i already mentioned you can find links to our social medias i can be found on several platforms as rob underscore o underscore raptor and dave i can be found on various platforms as david is wrong and touching back on our patreon every week now you can join our Patreon for, I think I got a dollar tier and a $2 tier there. So it's not a huge investment. I support a couple other podcasts that uh, friends do with a dollar a month tier. It's not a big investment for me. It's a dollar, $12 a year. I mean, don't go out to lunch once over the course of a year. Come on, man. So for a dollar a year, you can join our Patreon. On our Patreon, we've been posting unedited. <laughs> this week should be interesting. <laughs> And no ad uh, versions of every episode. So if you wanted to listen to one or the other, um, at least with the unedited, you can hear some of the stupid crap that Rob and I banter about to one another that I make sure never ends up in the final versions. You can do so by becoming a patron of ours. We would appreciate the support. So each week we tell you a story about one game relevant to the current week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, uh, technology. I teach you something new about the topic. Let's just go with that, about the topic. What it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. One of the greatest things about doing this podcast is that as we research for each episode, we learn new things. So as we teach you things, we learn things as well. That's why I love doing this each week because I have a brain that just loves knowledge and doing this podcast week in, week out really lets me just lay into that and learn things. And that's fantastic. In recognition of this cycle, in that as we teach you, we learn, we like to go round table and talk about what we learned every week, what our takeaways are. So Rob, what's your biggest takeaway of the week? <clears throat> well, Dave, I think it's that you can play a text adventure game on a calculator. <laughs> 
It's just it's crazy what those those uh, TI okay. graphing calculators are right. capable of. So in this case, no, but you can, and we both know oh, of that. Course. Yeah, you can play freaking like Tetris on Doom, man. I think they've made Doom on a Texas calculator before, haven't they? I'm, I absolutely guarantee it. There's no way they haven't. That's um yeah no I uh, it's still funny to me but I think that it's interesting like obviously it didn't last very long but it's not a genre that I really think about with text adventures so it's just it's crazy to know that they was so popular for such a short time and also the fact that they were blasting out you said what was it nine games in that one year yeah like oh make i mean what the one of those games they produce in a week can you imagine i mean i say can you imagine but we have weekend game gems now where people produce entire games in a weekend so what do i know i mean yeah it's a lot different now though i feel than back then like i mean i guess the complexity of the games now done in the same amount of time is just different so it's not that different but it's still you're right it's just insane to think about it that's crazy so that, that's I think that's my big takeaway, just the, the speed at which these games took off and that they were able to produce them and just that it was a popular genre altogether. It's crazy to me. True. So what about you, Dave? What's your big takeaway from this week? Calliope. 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 That's how you say it. Calliope. See, I can't yep. I can't even get it right when I want to get it wrong. Man. Uh, Calliope. The fact that the instrument is called Calliope and then there was a cool uh rhyme to help you between calliope and calliope cracks me up i i i mean i'm sure at one time we learned that you know being that we were you know doing music for and music theory for so long but i don't know lost no 100 not i i never knew that calliope was a thing i've only ever heard calliope that's hilarious i love it i love it love it love it so that's my takeaway for today all right Right well, well before i take it out of here and into next week is there anything that you'd like to add to today's episode Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to everyone for listening. It means the world to us, and we hope that you enjoy listening. Otherwise, why the hell are you here? Very true. With that being said, thank you. Let's look at next week. Rob, we're doing one of our favorites, aren't we? Uh, I don't know, Dave, are we? Yeah, we're definitely doing one of our favorites. Well, what are we doing, Dave? Well, next week, we're going to look at the 2007 first-person shooter game, Bioshock. Hell yeah, let's go. Yeah, I know, right? We both love the Bioshock. Time to shock those bios. So Bioshock borrows from a lot of dystopian, utopian thinkers like Ayn Rand, George Orwell, and Aldous Huxley. We'll talk about some of them. Heck, it even borrows from Walt Disney. Like, there's so much fantastic influence this game. We have so much to talk about next week. So, you know, just stick around. And I just have one question to ask, Rob. What's that, Dave? Would you kindly join us next week for another episode and a trip down memory card lane? Do the thing. Do we do 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 do